1 Corinthians chapter 15, 50 through 58. So I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the perishable, imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Please take a seat. Just before we pray, I wanted to underscore the announcement about uh, biblical manhood and womanhood. I wanted to really emphasize that this is, this is not a class that we're doing just for the sake of doing a class, but it's something that we believe is absolutely foundational to life in the church. That, that it's impossible, we believe, to actually make disciples if men don't know what the vision for a godly man is and if women don't know what the vision for a godly woman is. And then there's so many things that, that flow out of our understanding of, of why God made humanity male and female. And so, please don't consider this as one option of many. If you've uh, learned anything that we've, uh, in how we've been doing things, everything is very intentional. We don't offer a lot of things all at once. We offer one thing at a time because it very intentionally fits into a strategic plan of discipleship. We are trying to take us as a church and each individual in this church from here to there, and every stepping stone is crucial. So we we try to keep it short. It's five weeks for the men and then five weeks for the women. Uh, I appreciate if you can't make some of these uh, classes, but if at all possible, uh, could you try to rearrange your life for five weeks to come and be a part of these classes. So that's my pitch for it. It's really important. You may say, well, I already know everything I need to know about biblical manhood and womanhood. Well, then we really need you in the class uh, so that you can help to teach us. So if you know everything about biblical manhood and womanhood, please come and you can give us your wisdom. Uh, Otherwise, it's still something that we can always be refreshing ourselves in. Oh, yes. That's God's plan for me as a man. Or, oh yes, that's God's plan for me as a woman. And you see the world around us. The world is languishing because the world in which we live does not understand 
manhood and womanhood. And because of that, marriages don't make sense. Self-identification doesn't make sense. Relationships are breaking down. Families are eroding. Uh, so this is no, not a secondary issue. It's, it's primary uh, for our culture and for discipleship in the church. So with that plug, uh, I, I, see, I see a couple of you pulling out your calendars. That's great. Uh, pull out that calendar and, and make sure you can make it. Starting this Wednesday for five weeks for the men. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your scriptures. You have revealed so much to us. You, you tell us exactly why you created us male and female. Uh, you, you tell us explicitly what our problem is, that we've rebelled against you and we have sinned. Uh, you, you tell us exactly how you have stepped into history to solve that problem by sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have shown us clearly the promises of the gospel, which is forgiveness for sins if we believe in Jesus, eternal life that starts even now, and resurrection from the dead. The bodies that we put in the ground will come back to life and live and reign with Christ forever. And oh Lord, please help us to, to understand and help us in our understanding to cherish and in our cherishing of this doctrine, help us to be filled with joy and excitement and anticipation. Lord, may it melt away the fear that can grip us, whether that is a fear of death or any other lesser fear. We have nothing to fear because fear is in judgment. The judgment has come and gone for us who are in Christ. And all that awaits us is life and resurrection and glory. I pray for this church, Lord. Would we be a, a people of the resurrection? Help us to think on it. Desire it and speak about it. I pray that you would give us clarity in our thinking. Help me as I take a look at these last nine verses from the chapter that is all about resurrection. Speak through me. Bring clarity through my words. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank Peter for preaching a couple weeks ago, and we weren't together last week. Uh, Peter took, took us the next step in this, in this series on resurrection, and it was a little bit of a detour. He left 1 Corinthians 15 to me, uh, but in case you weren't here, I highly commend that sermon to you. Because what he did was he said, okay, it's great to talk about resurrection, and it's wonderful that our bodies are going to be raised from the dead, and, and yes, we should want Jesus to come back, but if we've learned anything from biblical history, it's that we don't always want what God says we ought to want. And, and that has manifested itself in different ways from Adam and Eve all the way to the present. And, and one very real danger for us is to, to assent intellectually to what we've been talking about since before Easter. Yes, though we die, we'll be raised from the dead. And we could say, yes, that's true. And yes, that's good. And yes, I want that. Just not yet. I want Jesus to come back, but just not now. If I know that I'm going to be raised from the dead, and I know that that's coming, let's just push it off. Just push it off. I'd love to get married. I'd love to graduate university. I'd love to get a job. I'd love to have kids. I'd love to have grandchildren. I'd love to whatever. And I thought 
Peter did such an able job of being very vulnerable, and thank you, Peter, of saying, you know, that's something that he struggles with. It's something that I struggle with. I don't know, is it, is it something that you struggle with? Like, these are good things for later. But what the, what the Lord wants us, really wants us to feel, and, and we feel the, the, the force of it, especially, I think, in, in today's passage, is that this is not something to defer. This is not something where we ought to be saying, you know, I, I want it, but not now. Uh, if we really understand the doctrine that, that I've been trying to to bring across to us we should want it now now escape from this evil age escape from from these bodies that are breaking down escape from from the tension and the war within where though i want to do what's right there it is my evil sin nature always tempting me to do something that deep down i don't want to do well when christ returns it's all over it's just glory resurrection no more sin no, no more sickness, no more weakness, no more aging with de- decrepitness. No more getting old, although we will continue to age in glory. We should want that now. Come, Lord Jesus. That's, that's really the, the, the cry of the heart that Jesus wants for us. And, and as I've said, and as Peter said, I don't always resonate with that. But I will tell you, uh, I don't know if you are the kind of person that remembers dreams. And I shared this over a year ago, but there's some new faces, and I think it's worth bringing up again. There's one dream that I've had that has stuck with me. It's so vivid. And it's not a prophecy, as I said before, but it's a hope that I have. And in this dream that I had, and I, I still remember it more clearly than any other memory that I actually lived through, I, I'm at, on the front lawn where, where I grew up. There's five acres of lawn in the front and five acres of forest behind. And there's field to the side. And it's kind of a grayish day, and all of a sudden, innumerable birds, uh, incalculable number of birds come out of the field, and they're filling, there's this one tree that I'm, is right before me, and they're filling that tree, it's kind of like an Alfred Hitchcock movie, it didn't, had no idea that this was going to be a good dream, but it, it turned out to be a good dream. These birds were going crazy, and then they filled the trees of the forest, I said, what's going on? And then I looked up, and there were clouds, and it was like gray day, but then all of a sudden this, this warm yellow light began to just descend from the clouds. And I saw two angels. Again, this is not a prophecy. This is just my dream, so I'm not saying this is how it's going to go down. But, but I saw two angels, and they were sort of swimming in the clouds like dolphins. And I knew at that moment that this was the return of Christ. And I looked up, and I don't remember if there was anyone with me or not, but I looked up just wanting to catch a glimpse of the Lord Jesus. And then there he was, over top of the cloud. And I remember it was like a a shot of, of electricity went through me, and I was shot up into the air, and I woke up. I tried to go back to sleep. It's the best dream I've ever had. And, and because of that dream, and I really believe it was a kindness of God to give me that dream, not a promise by any means, but a kindness because that dream has helped me to want that more. That's what I want for you. I want 
us together to want the return of Christ more than anything else. To be caught up with Christ in glory. That's what today's text is all about. Today's text is about the return of Christ and what will happen on that day. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 15. I want to begin in verse 50. Now we ended on Easter. This is the last time I preached. It was on Easter. We ended with verse 50. I want to begin with verse 50 because this is a troublesome verse that that takes us in the wrong direction and so it's very understandable if, if we haven't understood these things because when you read verse 50 it sounds as though our hope is to get rid of our bodies take a look there i'm going to read it and then explain it i tell you this brothers flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of god nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now you just pluck that verse out and you read that alone. What do you think it's saying? You can't go to heaven in your body. That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? The only problem is the 49 verses that come before and the 8 verses that come after, Paul is making the exact opposite point. That, that our hope is for glorified physical bodies. And he talks about the resurrection of Christ as the model on which we should expect our own resurrection. You flip back to uh, Luke 24, and Jesus really wants his disciples to see that he is not a ghost. And so he says, look at my hands and my feet. It's I myself, meaning this is the same body that was crucified they didn't believe. Come here, touch me. They're, they're pressing in on him through the, through the flesh to the skeleton. He says, Ghosts don't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. They still didn't believe. So he says, do you have anything here to eat? They had a broiled fish. They gave it to him and he ate. The point that Jesus is making to them is the same point that he's making to us and I want to make to you is that we will live forever in flesh and bone bodies. Our resurrection will follow after the pattern of the resurrection of Jesus. The body that was crucified and buried came back to life. The body, my body, your body that dies and gets buried or cremated or eaten by a shark or a bear or, or whatever, those bodies will come back to life. Those bodies will come back to life. So what does this mean? Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Well, the second half of the verse is really helpful. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. We, what he's saying is perishable bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What we need is imperishable bodies. Physical, super physical, imperishable, immortal bodies. I want to uh, just flesh this out a little bit more, pardon the pun, but flip over to 2 Corinthians 5. Remember at Easter, I said, uh, we really need to think in three categories. So you have ghosts, that's category number one. And we're going to go from least, le least substantial to most substantial. So you have ghosts, and the more substantial physically than ghosts are the bodies that we have now, imperishable bodies. More substantial yet, so that's category two. More substantial yet is category three, spiritual bodies, which are imperishable, immortal, superphysical bodies. So ghost, the bodies we're in now, 
until you get your resurrected body. So we go in that order. Now Paul, in, in the passage I want to show you here, is, is dealing with the th- same three categories. But rather than dealing with them in the order of least physical to most physical, he's going to deal with these, these forms chronologically. So what I want you to see is, in, in, in position number one, he puts the bodies that we have now. We're, we're in a body now. He calls that body a tent. Category two is to be found naked or unclothed. What he means there is to be without a body, disembodied. Souls. When we die, we will be without a body. Our souls will go to heaven. That's chronologically stage two. But what what you're going to see, he says there, that's not the goal. The goal is not to be in a tent or to be without a body, but to be in a palace which is, category three, a more physical body. It's not to be without a body, but to be in a better version of the bodies that we have in tent form now. So you see those three categories? So let's just read this, and I'll move across the platform here when he's talking about different different aspects. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, he's talking about our bodies, so when we die... We know that we have a building from God. Now notice what he does here. He goes from category one, your perishable body now. He says, don't worry about that tent being destroyed because our ultimate hope is resurrected bodies. We have a building, a palace from God. And he, he swings all the way over here to category three. This is a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now he goes back to the bodies we have now. For in this tent, the bodies we have now, we groan. It's not easy to be in this body. It's hard not to gain too much weight. We're all growing older. We get sick, whether it's a cold, the flu, or something more serious. So we're groaning in these these tents. Therefore, we long to put on our heavenly dwelling. He's back over here in resurrected bodies. Don't, Don't worry so much about your tent. Hope for your resurrected body. Now look at what he says In verse 3 here, if indeed by putting it on, that is our resurrected bodies, we may not be found to be naked, that is to be without a body. That's this soul only, disembodied middle stage. For while we are still in this tent, okay, he's back in these bodies that we're in now, we groan, he's repeating it, being burdened. Now look what he says there in the second part of verse 4. But it's not that we would be unclothed. That is our goal, our hope, is not to be without a body. Or we're not trying to get rid of these broken down aging bodies to be without a body. Do you see that there? For while in this tent we groan being burdened. But it's not that we would be unclothed to be without a body. But that we would be further clothed, resurrected body. So that what is mortal, he's over here again in the bodies we're in now, will be swallowed up by life, which happens not when we die and go to heaven in our souls, but when we're resurrected in bodies. Verse 5, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. In those verses, Paul is extremely clear that the hope, the goal, the desire ought to be for physicality, for embodiedness. And he says, but don't 
hold on to the body you have now too tightly, you can risk that tent because you've got a palace from God, resurrected bodies coming. Okay. Now, it's with that context you have to understand verse 6 and following. So we're always of good courage because what someone might say, well, then I don't want to die. If, if I would rather be embodied, I don't want to die because I would rather either be in this tent or in the palace, which is my resurrected bodies. I don't want to be without a body, which he clearly said, which we went through. But he's saying, actually, we know that while we are at home in this body that is in this tent, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And now look at what he says here. We would rather be away from the body, that is this tent, and at home with the Lord, implicitly what he's saying, without a body. So whether we are at home, oh, at home, sorry, is without a body with the Lord in heaven, or away, that is in our tents, in the bodies that we have now, We make it our aim to please him, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due him for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And here's the point that Paul is making. Just as he's laid this out chronologically, so you're in your tent. When your tent is destroyed, that is when you die, you go to heaven without a body. Or at least it's a body that we don't know much about. It's a, it's a, it's a non-physical vehicle, if I could say it that way. But while you're in heaven without a body, you don't want to be unclothed forever. You want to be raised back to life into the palace, which is your resurrected body. But notice what, so he does that chronologically. You're in your body now, then you die, and you're in heaven without a body, but the goal is, third, to be raised physically from the dead. Now, what he also says is, our goal is to be in bodies, but... To be in this tent is good. To, to die and to be with Christ without a body is better. So risk your life. It's better to die and go to heaven. But it's best to be raised from the dead. You see that? That's what this is all about. So he's not throwing away the doctrine of resurrection that we've worked so hard to establish in these verses. But you have to understand what he's trying to say. And so when he says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, uh, what he's saying is the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth, where we will dwell forever with God, you don't get there in the tent, and you're not going to live there forever without a body. What you need is super physical resurrected glory. So we can talk more about that. If you have any questions about that, I, please do ask. And I hope that that helps you to understand this verse 50 right here. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. I, in order to get the imperishable, the new heavens and the new earth, which is super physical, where God dwells in his manifest glory, that is, when the, when the one who is transcendent, who, who exists in inapproachable or unapproachable light, it, when you are called into his presence, you can't go in there in your tent. God's got to give you a better body. It's connected, but it's glorified. So, that deals with verse 50. And what we're going to see now is verses 51 through 58 really just 
fill that in. What does that mean? What does that look like? How is that going to come about? And that's what we're going to look at right now. Take a look at the first th- uh, six words of verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, if somebody says that to you, what, what ought you to do? Your ears ought to perk up. You're going to tell me something that I don't know. You're going to tell me something that I could not have come to that conclusion unless you tell me. So so after talking about resurrection for 50 verses, now he finally gets to the punchline. He says, okay, now you're ready. I've given you all the information that you need. Now I want to tell you this great thing that the Lord has revealed to me. Because what is a mystery in the Bible? The mystery is not something that is unsolvable. A mystery is something that God has revealed to Paul that before he revealed it to Paul, no one fully understood. So what we're about to read, there's no, no Old Testament prophet or saint fully understood what I'm about to tell you. I, until the Lord Jesus revealed this to Paul, no one could have come to this conclusion on their own. And, the, and yet Jesus revealed this to Paul, and now Paul's passing it on to us, and I'm going to pass it on to you. What an honor, what a blessing to be the one who gets to deliver this mystery, but for you to receive this mystery. This is what God wants us to know. So what is this mystery? It has three parts. Part number one, not everyone will die. You know, up until this point, if you read any genealogy, and he lived this many years, and he died. And he lived this many years, and he died. He lived this many years, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Everybody dies. And, and that's a truth that we all come, come to terms with, right? We know that there's nothing certain in life but death and taxes. We have to pay taxes, and we're going to die. But now here's the mystery. It's possible that none of us will die. If the Lord Jesus Christ returns before I'm finished preaching, none of us will die, unless you die before that in this sermon. But, but if the Lord Jesus Christ returns, we need not die. So how's that for wanting the Lord to return? How, how many of you don't want to die? I don't want to die. Although, to get out of this tent is better, I suppose. But I would rather skip that intermediate stage of being unclothed. Let's just go from tent to palace. That's part number one. Not everyone will die. Part number two everyone will be changed. We're going to take a look at that. The way that a a, a dead person is changed is different than the way that a living person is changed. But when the Lord Jesus returns, everyone will be changed. And then number three of this mystery is that death will be defeated by the glorification of human bodies. How's God going to do this? How's he going to defeat death? How is he going to fulfill the prophetic promise that, that death is swallowed up in victory? That's right from Isaiah 25.8. So how's God going to do that? Well, this is the mystery that Paul reveals. He tells us how he's going to do it. God is going to swallow up death. God is going to defeat death by changing us into glorified superphysical bodies. So let's take a look at each of these in order. Not everyone will die. Continuing on in verse 51. So behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Now he's not talking about sleeping in the sense of going to sleep and waking up 
without death, but sleep there is a euphemism for death. But it's a really important euphemism. Why does he use sleep as a metaphor? He's referring to the body. You see, when Christians die, their bodies are, in fact, sleeping. They're dead. They're not working. But theologically, they're sleeping. What that means is they'll awake. And so if God is going to throw away the body, you can't say that the body is asleep. Because the concept of sleep is attached to it is always the time of waking up. Waking up is resurrection. So not all of us will die, meaning not, or not all of us will sleep, meaning not all of our bodies will die. We've already gone over that. If the Lord Jesus returns, then we'll be glorified in an instant. Uh, number two then, continuing on, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. What does it mean that everyone will be changed? We're going to get into that, but first, in the flow of logic, Paul answers two other questions. Question number one. So this is in that second part of the mystery. We're all going to be changed. Paul begins by answering a question that we're not even asking. How? How? Is it a process? Is it something we have to grow into? Will it take time? How will everyone be changed? Take a look at verse 52. Everyone will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. How are we going to be changed? Jesus Christ, we're going to see the timing of this, but he's just going to demand us to be changed. He's going to command us to be changed. He's going to, the word will come forth from his lips and everyone will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. It's not a process. It's instantaneous. The twinkling of an eye, I, I looked this up um, before. I forget now. But it's, we're in the nanoseconds. Within, within a nanosecond, everything is different. Everything is changed. All your ailments are gone. All your weaknesses are gone. All the effects of, of aging in a, in a sin-drenched world is gone. Your, your impulse to sin is gone. In an instant, at the command of God. Oh, the power of God is so good. Uh, how are we going to be changed? Well, he's going to say change and we'll be changed. Not over time, not progressively, but an instant. The second question is, well, when? When is this going to happen? He continues on. We, uh, we shall not all sleep. We all shall all be changed how? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. When? At the last trumpet. At the last trumpet. Now, he, Paul is there referring to other places in Scripture. We would find out that the last trumpet occurs when Jesus Christ is returning for us. So when cr Jesus returns for us, there's a trumpet sounded in heaven. And at that moment, he calls out to us. And he says, be changed. And we are changed. Finally, we get to the question we really want to know is, what does it mean that everyone will be changed? And the first part of this we've gone over at depth. Part one is that the dead will be raised back to life. God will begin with whatever remains are there. And whatever is missing, he'll, he'll more than make up for it. He will raise whatever remains there are back to life, and then he will pack your resurrected body with the stuff of God's own nature. Peter says that we are partakers of the divine nature. 
That doesn't mean we become God. We don't become God. We don't become Father, Son, or Spirit. We're the bride of Christ. We are, we are joined to the triune God by marriage through Christ. But the, the stuff of God, the, the nature of God becomes the stuff of us. Our very own nature is the very nature of God. We become partakers of the divine nature. How's that for glory? So, so if you're saying, well, I don't really want this body to be raised back to life, don't worry. This, imp- or this perishable, weak, you know, medium-looking guy is going to be glorious, wonderful. And we will shine like the stars of heaven. We will, we will be made of the same substance as the God who dwells in unapproachable light. And I don't even know how to describe that to you. John says in 1 John 3 that we don't know what it's going to be like, but we know that we will be like him, meaning Christ, for we will see him as he is. That is, there there won't need to be any filter between us and him. We will be made fit physically to gaze upon the glory of God in Christ. And and I would take Revelation uh, 22 to say that we will see the face of God, that we, we will gaze upon the Father, whatever that means. I don't know what that means because he dwells in unapproachable light. To this point, he's been invisible. But there's a qualitative glorification and the dead in Christ will be raised and some skeleton or ashes will be raised up into the the stuff of God. That, That is just amazing. So there's continuity. It's the same you. It's the same body. There's a connection, there's a one-to-one correlation between the body that died and the body that's raised. But there's also discontinuity, that there's, there's imperishability, immortality, superphysicality added. So that's part one. We'll all be changed. We're not all going to die, but we'll all be changed. The dead will, will be changed first, we're told in 1 Thessalonians 4. They, they will rise and be changed first. But let's go back to this whole part about we will not all die. What about us? So we know that Paul has talked about resurrection from the dead, but what about God willing if, if we're alive when he comes back? Well, we'll be resurrected without having to die. We will be changed in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, by immediate transformation, glorification. Take a look there halfway through verse 52. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. We've talked about that. And we shall be changed. He's talking about those. The we is not Paul necessarily himself, but those who are alive. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So everything that happens to somebody who is resurrected from the dead happens to those who are living at the time that Christ returns. Now what I want you to notice, and, and this is just underscoring truths that we've gone over and over again, but I just want to m- make sure that you see that this is right there in the Scriptures. The tendency is, because of the influence of Greek philosophy and what I would call... Um, Gnostic theology, which is heresy, which we're all vulnerable to. Don't feel bad. We're all vulnerable to it in our culture. But the impulse, until this sermon series came along maybe, 
is to think that we strip away substance in order to go up into heaven and to be more ethereal. That is absolutely impossible if you look closely here. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. Now look at verse 53. For this perishable body, so he's over here in the tent, this perishable body must put on the imperishable. Now he's over here in, in the, the palace from God. You notice it's a, it's a further adding to, it's a putting more on, it's not a taking something off. So it's not a, a, a hope to remove the physicality, but to put on greater physicality from perishable to imperishable. Same thing we go on. This mortal body must not throw off mortality, right? That's Greek philosophy. That's Gnostic theology, which is heresy, or popular Christian theology in a lot of circles. But this mortal body, we don't throw off our mortality. We put on immortality. So it's a greater than. It's an adding to. It's a, it's a substance added. Glorification of. Which is always from the lesser to the greater. Now there's this intermediate stage where we're without a body, but that's just intermediately. So, uh, we put on, there's no taking off. Now we get to the third part of this mystery. So part one of the mystery is that we're not all going to die. Part two of the mystery is that we'll all be changed. The dead will be changed by resurrection and the living when Christ returns by instant transformation and glorification. Now the third part of this mystery is that death will be defeated by the glorification of human bodies. How is God going to defeat death? He's going to give us bodies that death cannot touch. And if death cannot touch these bodies, what else cannot touch these bodies? Sin, right? Because sin naturally leads to death. Sin and death go hand in glove. So if, if the resurrected bodies that we're going to get are out of the reach of death, they're also out of the reach of sin, it, it will be physically and spiritually impossible to sin. There will be no traces of our sin nature left. Every one of us will be the best possible version of ourselves. And in that way, we'll be almost unrecognizable even to ourselves. But I don't want to overstate that because you will be you and I will be me forever. All of your personality will be intact. Your body will be there. You will be you. Tom will be Tom. Scott will be Scott. Ange will be Ange. I will be me. We all get to be ourselves forever and ever. We're not absorbed into a greater divinity. So dead bodies are resurrected in glory. Living bodies are transformed in glory. Now, this is the point. This is the, the whole, the, the punchline of everything that, that Paul has been trying to get across. God gives us eternal life through the super physical glorification of human bodies. Take a look at verses 44 to 45. When, so there's a temporal marker, when this happens, when Christ returns, the last trumpet, when the dead are raised imperishable, when the living are transformed and glorified instantly, then the perishable will have put on the imperishable and the mortal put on immortality. And then shall come to pass the saying that is written in the prophet Isaiah, death is swallowed up in victory. 
This has been God's plan from the very beginning. To swallow up death by glorification of our bodies. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? I said this a few weeks ago, but don't give death anything. Don't give death even your body as a trophy. Death is swallowed up in victory. You get the last word. Your body wins over death. Death will only possess your body for a time. The most death can do to you is cause your body to theologically sleep for a time until the return of Christ, at which time your body wins. Your body rises. Your body lives. He goes on and he says, death is actually very unnatural. The only reason that we experience death, it seems so normal, but haven't you experienced in your life that a loved one has died? And maybe you even know that this loved one was close to death, but it comes as a shock. You can hardly believe that this person has died. Or, Or maybe you hear about some celebrity that you don't even know. And, and you, you hear that, that that person has died. You can hardly believe it. I, I actually had that experience when Roy Halliday died. I could hardly believe that this pitcher that I had watched pitching, who seemed so fit, so young, died in a crash. I could hardly believe that, that, that a crash, an airplane crash, could take out his life. But, but I all, I, at the same time, I know how easy it is to succumb to death. I, I, I know that nobody lives forever. Huge caveat, this sermon series. Um, but, but death surprises us. Why? Because death should never have happened. God created us to live in the bodies he created forever. And in fact, the, the great intruder is death. So Again, we shouldn't be surprised that the God who who created us to live forever would raise us back to life. Death is the enemy. Death is the intruder. Death is the apostate one. Death is the surprise, the shock. Death is the one that is against God. And so we're rightly shocked because we were built to live, not to die. Though we know that Death is coming unless the Lord returns. And that's exactly what he says to close out the chapter. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we die because we've sinned. And sin is, is made powerful by the law. It's not that the law is bad, but the law identifies all the different ways that we can sin. So the law is good. The law tells us what we ought to be doing, but then we just do the opposite of it all, uh, which is sin, which then requires us to die. So thanks be to God who gives us the victory. How does he give us the victory? It's definitely not because we pull ourselves up. It's not that we we somehow stop sinning and, and get a grip on ourselves and and reverse the curse of death because of our sin that's not it but God sent forth the sinless son of God Jesus Christ as one of us and then Jesus comes along and Jesus says uh, I am immortal and indestructible because I I have not sinned and I will not sin but give me your sin 
I'll carry it. Kill me, and I'll die for you. And then I'll come back to life so that you can rise from the dead. What a gospel and what a God. The one whose name is life. Jesus is the source of all life, beginning of John's gospel. All life comes from him. So whether it's us or my two dogs at home or the grass that's trying really hard to get through the snow or some palm trees down in Florida, whether it's uh, bio biological life or um, sorry, animal life or plant life or human life, all life comes from Christ. And he comes and he says, I'll die for you. And then I'll come back to life. And my death will be your death. I'm gonna, I, we're going to count my death as your death. And my life is your life. You attach yourself to me. And though you die, so shall you live. I mean, is there any greater news in the world? And it boggles the mind that people hate that message. We go out into the world and say, hey, do you want to live forever? Yes, I do. Well, I have a way for you. All you have to do is give your sin to Jesus, let him die for you, and then he'll come back to life and he, you'll rise with him when he comes back. I hate you. It just doesn't make any sense, but it shows you the depravity. But now let's, let's come a little closer to home. Resurrection. Why aren't we talking about resurrection near and far in our homes in our classrooms at work i'm going to live forever i'm going to come back to life i'm going to have i'm going to be made of the same stuff as god i'm going to be glorious powerful i'm going to i'm going to live without weakness without sin forever why is that not easy for us to talk about cuz that's exactly what the world needs to hear and we've got the message Paul ends with three application points, and so I'm going to end with three application points. Verse 58. Therefore, in light, and, and the therefore is five weeks of preaching, okay? So if you can remember back, week one, Blair, Blair preached about how Jesus has come back to life. Week two, I preached about how if Jesus died and came back to life, then it, we will come back to life too. You can't have the resurrection of Jesus without our own resurrection from the dead. And then we talked about, well, what, what does this resurrection look like? It looks like an acorn that you put in the ground and out comes an oak tree, except that we're going to shine brighter than the, the brightest sun, moon, or star. When's this going to happen? When Christ returns, there's going to be a trumpet blown in heaven, and, and the dead are going to rise in glory, and the living are going to be transformed in an instant. In light of all of that, my beloved brothers, Sisters, be steadfast. What does it mean to be steadfast? Endure. No one's life is that good now. This is not your best life. Except that there's continuity, so it's going to get good, but you're not in the prime of your life now. It, uh, it doesn't matter how good your life is, this is 
this is nothing compared to the glory about to be revealed to us. And most of us are struggling in life. Life is hard. Life comes with physical pain, relational pain, emotional pain, the pain of sin, anxiety, depression, a lack of joy, work, toil. Just think for a moment, what, what is making your life hard? Paul says, be steadfast. He's not trying to ignore the difficult times. And there's other passages that can speak into our lives when life is hard. But remember what is to be and endure. Endure through a difficult marriage. Seek reconciliation. Put up with aches and pains and chronic diseases and terminal illnesses. Endure with a, with a head that's held high and with hope and joy and gladness because resurrection will come to us. It's a promise. So therefore, be steadfast. Secondly, he says, immovable. What does it mean to be immovable? It means don't budge, don't move. Stand your ground. And what he's talking about there is doctrinally. You know, there are so many people that hate you because you have uh, a message of love and reconciliation and forgiveness and eternal life. And yeah, it doesn't make sense. But persecutions will come. People will be angry with you. You're, you're not going to be in the inner circle over here at work, maybe. You might not get that promotion. It might be difficult in your extended family or maybe even your immediate family, people that don't agree with you. But, but be immovable. Don't trade the eternal glory of resurrection for peace now. Don't take the path of least resistance now. Be immovable in your convictions of the gospel. Know who Jesus is. Know what he has done for you. Know what he has promised you. And stand your ground. And, and this is especially important as we're going to have to pay higher and higher costs, even in this country. I don't know if God has called any of us to martyrdom, but he might have. And, and, and I can't prepare myself for the moment of martyrdom, but God's grace will be sufficient then. But even now, be ready, if that were to come, to be immovable. Because the worst that an enemy can do to you is to kill your body. Or the body of a loved one. But God will raise you from the dead. Paul himself would lay down his life. He was immovable. Continuing on, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now let's just pretend for a moment that we believed in a works-based gospel. That is, this is not good theology, just so you know. But let's just say for a moment that I said to you, there is this possibility that you could be raised from the dead and live forever, but there's some things you need to do. Who would do it? You would do it. What wouldn't we do to be raised from the dead? 
Now, resurrection is free. It's a free gift by grace through faith. God has done all the work. He offers it to us for free. But what if the same God who promises to raise you from the dead says, what I want you to do is to change diapers. That's, I've called you to motherhood. I've called you to change diapers, to look after your children, to clean your home, to get groceries. What, what if the same God who's going to raise you from the dead, free of charge, says, what I want you to do is build the best possible car wash that you know how to build, right? And I want you to be a witness. As an employer, I want you to be a witness with your customers. What if God said, what I want you to do is to give your life to study in the scriptures? You don't have to build houses. You don't have to be the president of some country or prime minister of this country. You don't need to be a diplomat. What I want you to do is study the Bible, teach the Bible. You know, fill in the blank. Is the problem with a lot of these things for the Christian is we don't feel it's enough. But if God has said, I'm going to raise you from the dead, now this is what I want you to do. Not to earn resurrection, but could we do it? And what this does is it reorients our lives, saying that always abound in the work of the Lord, whatever that is. It doesn't have to be great from the world's standards. Whatever you do, if you do it to honor the Lord in keeping with his revealed will, and you do it to the best of your ability, not to earn anything from God, but just to honor God, know that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. And so this gives uh, value to everything that we're doing so long as we're doing it in keeping with God's call on our lives. I love this doctrine, if you can tell. I want us to love this doctrine too. It's my prayer that we would be a people of the resurrection. It's my conviction that there are not enough Christians in North America who love the doctrine of the resurrection. Could we be that church that loves the doctrine of the resurrection? It changes the way we live our lives. It changes the witness we have in the world. And I believe if we do that, God will honor our witness for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, I pray, help us to love this doctrine and help it to be more than just an intellectual exercise or a far-off hope, but may it be something that we long for even now. Help us in our weaknesses and our uh, sinfulness. Lord, it's true that each one of us, to some degree or another, is gripped by worldliness and materialism. We don't always want glory now. Change us. I plead with you from the inside out. In Christ's name, amen.